Welcome to Talking APAC, a podcast series brought to you by APAC. And APAC stands for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council. We're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology programmes offered by higher education providers in Australia. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land, and we pay our respects to Elders, past and present. My name's David Glanz, and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. A little earlier this year, The Guardian website published an article by four psychologists that highlighted the disturbing situation concerning mental health among Indigenous people. And the authors told us that compared to other Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are almost three times more likely to experience high psychological distress, twice as likely to be hospitalised for a mental health condition and twice as likely to die by suicide. Yet the Western mental health system does not properly recognise the specific needs of Indigenous people. And at the same time, fewer than 1% of psychologists identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander when the Indigenous population is estimated to be 3.3%. So training more Indigenous people as psychologists is clearly important. And the broader challenge is to ensure that all psychologists are culturally responsive and are receiving training that supports that. This is a challenge for higher education providers who offer psychology programs and that means there's a challenge for APAC to help providers to deliver the culturally responsive training that is clearly so desperately needed. So this episode is about how APAC and providers guided by Indigenous expertise can contribute to turning around this situation. And joining me today are two of the authors of that Guardian article. Professor Pat Dudgeon is from the Bardi people in Western Australia. She is Australia's first identified Indigenous psychologist and she's Professor at the Post Centre for Aboriginal Health and the School of Indigenous Studies at the University of Western Australia. Pat is the Director of the Centre of Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention at UWA. And among many other activities, she was founding chair of the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association. Also joining us from UWA's School of Indigenous Studies and Post Centre for Indigenous Health is Research Associate Dr Joanna Alexi. And our third guest is Professor Romola Bucks, who is Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Health and Medical Research at UWA. Romola is a clinical psychologist who is internationally recognised for her work in the diagnosis of cognitive decline and dementia, and for her expertise in the cognitive and affective consequences of key disorders of ageing. She's a member of the APAC board, and this is really relevant for our discussion today, is leading an APAC working group on cultural responsiveness, which includes Pat, Joe, and indeed the other authors of the Guardian article. And all three guests are speaking from Wajuk Noongar country in Perth. So welcome to you all. Okay, Pat, perhaps I can come to you first. What prompted you and your colleagues to write that piece in the Guardian? Um, what kind of response were you hoping to generate? Well, it, 
uh, David, it was particularly about the work we're doing in the um, Australian Indigenous Psychology Education Project and the, um, uh, the resounding response, the very positive response we've had to that. And we'll talk about that more in some detail later on in the podcast. But we had an opportunity to, um, to do an article um, in The Guardian, which is um, much more mainstream outside our particular area in, in terms of Indigenous studies and psychology. We wanted to talk about the work we're doing, that how it's very important. It is groundbreaking, and that's why we um, wrote the article. So we're also representing Vanessa Edwidge from the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association, and she was the lead author in the, the article. Now, it's important to have this representative group for Indigenous psychologists, and Indigenous psychology does not get the space like others and with the reforms in mental health, it's become very pertinent to discuss and share what's happening. So we've had um, big policy actions like Close the Gap, but that's been about health. Mental health or social-emotional being have very recently um, become topics of, of interest that need to be addressed. But as you mentioned earlier, we know that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people experience Experience significant disparities in mental health and well-being. We highlighted all of this in the Guardian article. We know that suicide and well-being have become big issues and it's actually now one of the closing the gap targets. So zero suicide was the target and in order to achieve that target, you know, t focusing on social and emotional well-being has become the, the issue. It, this is an important approach that takes into account reality. So some of our work has been in Indigenous suicide prevention and it's not, uh, suicide in general is not um, a clinical issue only. You know, it is about for Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people, you know, we need to look at the history of colonisation, uh, historical and current racism, both at individual and systemic and institutionalised levels and just the place of Indigenous people where they are in Australia now have contributed to these very um, terrible disparities. We do also need different approaches, so we, we prefer to um, look at a social-emotional being approach because that is holistic, so that takes into account whole-of-life well-being. We know that social and emotional well-being not only encompass physical and mental health, but also one's connections to their family, to their community, to their kinship, their country, their spirituality, and recognition of the history of colonisation, which has shaped us and shaped where we are in this point in time now. There's no simple solutions, and we, we need to look at new paradigms and new approaches that um, will serve Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and um, change those statistics. So um, quite a big change, quite a reform is needed. Thanks. And, and look, by the way, I'll put a link to the article in the podcast description for listeners who'd like to read it. And of course, we did invite Vanessa to join us today, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to make it. Now, Pat, and look, Joe, you may have a view as well. We're focused here particularly on the training of psychologists because that's the core business for APAC and for the academics who we we deal with. How is the current approach to psychology training 
failing psychologists and ultimately Indigenous patients. Can you talk to us about what that looks like? What are some examples? Okay, David. Look, God invite Joanne, um, who's um, recently come out of her psychology um, PhD, to speak to that as a, a, a student of recent student of psychology, and um, who's very integral into the uh, part of the work we're doing in the Australian Indigenous Psychology Education Project. So over to you, Joe. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, I guess in reflecting um, on my recent experience going through psychology. And in also discussing this, I guess, with other colleagues that have recently gone through psychology, higher education, um, a, a common theme seems to have emerged. And it was really that we we felt that we had a lack of experience or a lack of content around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's um, well-being, models of well-being, histories and contexts. So there was that lack of knowledge that was taught within within the discipline, But but I suppose any um, content that was delivered had that sort of deficit focus kind of point of view and, and that's really harmful for for both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students as well as non-Indigenous um, graduates as well. So it has that dual impact I suppose for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students being in that room um, and hearing you know either not a lot of content so their realities weren't being displayed within the discipline or hearing content that was very deficit focused and didn't necessarily provide culturally responsive solutions to these issues that were being raised um, is really harmful for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples um, in that they felt that you know their realities weren't expressed or weren't realised within the discipline of psychology. And we know how important representation is. For non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students of psychology who would later go on to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, again, that was harmful in that it wasn't it wasn't preparing uh, graduates to adequately and culturally responsively work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander pe peoples in the future. Um, so it had that kind of dual impact. But we, we know that psychology is well placed to turn this around. As a discipline that's concerned about the well-being of people, psychology is really well placed to be leading that change, to, to encourage that inclusivity, um, to attract Indigenous trainees to study psychology, to see their realities expressed within the discipline, um, and to be leading culturally safe mental health care. That's super important, the core business of psychology. Perhaps over to you, Romola. The working group that you've been leading and that uh, Pat and Joe and others have been taking part in is aiming to help higher education providers meet Standard 3 Programme of Study Criterion 3.8 in the accreditation standards. Can you decode that for us? Uh, thank you very much for asking. So uh, um, most people will know that the accreditation standards for psychology programs cover five domains. The first is public safety, the second academic governance and quality insurance, the third program of study, uh, the fourth student experience and the fifth assessment. And within each domain there is a series of criteria. Criterion 3.8 is around cultural responsiveness and it reads cultural responsiveness including with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures is appropriately integrated within the program and clearly articulated as a required learning outcome. And what that actually means is, is that the intention of the criterion is to ensure providers uh, graduate students from their programs who actively engage in culturally responsive practice. And 
To that end, the discipline of psychology really needs a systems change. That's clear from the answers you've already had from Pat and Joe. To that end, the discipline of psychology requires a systems change to ensure that organizations, providers, students, educators, and practitioners all engage in culturally responsive ways. And so that change process has to begin in higher education, has to begin with our programs, because the students of today are the workforce of the future. And so if we want to make sure that we have a culturally responsive workforce and that our workplaces and spaces are culturally safe, we have to start by instilling cultural responsiveness and those understandings in our psychology graduates so that they are aware and can be responsive. And so the entire idea of the criterion is to ensure that providers provide that training. But the criterion is a little bit Delphic, it's a little bit unclear, and so we got feedback from providers that they wanted us to unpack that and give them some, some steering about where to go and how to address the issues. And so the working party was set up and we invited um, Pat and Joe and, and Bel Selkirk and many other people from Hotspur and APEP to come on board and help us develop this guidance document that we're going to be launching. And this guidance document seeks to help providers understand what the criterion requires and how to address it and to think about how they're going to approach it. You and I have chatted previously about this for an article for the OPAC website. And you described the actual process of the working group coming together and grappling with these issues as very much uh, a journey, learning together and a process of discussion and consultation. So what did you mean by that and what have you personally learned from this whole experience so far? So much. Um, let me start with the personal piece, if I may. When I was asked by the board to chair this working party, and remember I'm a blow-in from the UK, so I'm a white middle-aged woman with no experience of, of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and no particular expertise, and I found myself thinking, who, are, who am I to be sharing this working group but I've learned something really important along the way which is that we all need to be allies and that listening and working respectfully with people with greater expertise than me whether it's lived experience or professional expertise is the way to be an ally to to really learn as you go and that it's never too late to learn and so it's been an absolute privilege working with a fantastic team. We've had Joe and Pat, um, I said Belle Selkirk, um, Vanessa Edwidge. We've had um, Alison Garten, who's from our um, APAC um, accreditation committee. People like Sabine Hammond, who's both um, an experienced psychologist and uh, a member of the APAC project team. Tony Matchin, who's a, an assessor, Geneva Rohan, many, many others. I'm sure I've forgotten. Yes, Dawn and Darleston Jones, Laurel Burton and Deborah Dunstan. And each of them has brought diverse but essential expertise and insights to the process of, of deciding how will we going to unpack this criterion? What kind of advice did providers need? How are we going to give them that guidance in a way that was respectful of the journey that we're all on to learn about our own cultures, to learn to reflect on how our cultures and our cultural experiences impact the way we interact with others, but particularly 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And so I have learned so much from this process. It's been such a humbling process. And when I've talked to other members of the working group, and it'd be interesting to see what Joe and Pat say, I really feel that it's been a model of respect, cooperation, collaboration, articulate, sometimes challenging debate that's resulted in a document that I sincerely hope will be helpful and supportive and encouraging to providers to really help their students engage in culturally responsive practice. Part of this conversation has been participation by the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association and the Australian Indigenous Psychology Education Project. So what did those two organisations bring to the project? What, what, uh, what particular insights have all of you gained from, from those two organisations? Uh, well, I'll, st- I'll start the discussion and absolutely agree with you, Romla. I think the process of working with um, APEC has been um, a really enriching one and a process about collaboration. So it's been a real pleasure to have been part of the process. And I think that was our attitude too. With the um, Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association, we formed in 2008. We were formerly, uh, and still are, we're an interest group um, under, uh, within the Australian Psychological Society. So we're an interest group there. And we still have the interest group running but there were no uh, there was a, a, a great number of indigenous psychologists so we formed our own association under the APS and since then we have gone independent but uh, uh, with any group there are you know we do have shared um, aspirations and shared challenges in the work that we do most of us did study in in universities or in psychology programs where we that we didn't see ourselves and our people present in the curriculum so that's been a big issue and we didn't see any other way forward except a very western eurocentric psychology so i think i've i've personally witnessed a great change happening um both in psychology in the um the place of uh, indigenous people in australia i think there's um there's now a change, um, a willingness to accept and cultural boundaries that Western society or Western um, populations have and to understand and respect the, the cultural realities, strengths and um, being of other people. So I've, I see much more of a change in that. I remember as a young student going out to march in the social justice rallies and Land, mar- land rights marches and, and we'd be very much, um, you know, a group on our own with the odd um, non-Indigenous ally. But um, when we look at, for instance, um, recent public rallies such as the Black Lives Matter, you know, we were very much a part of that, the Australian Psychological Society and um, IEPA, the Indigenous Psychs, came out with a joint statement. So um, things have changed much, much for the better, and I think our society as a whole is changing. So I think that IPAP, the Psychology Education um, Project, has captured that. When we um, put out the call, we, we reformed. So this is the second iteration of IPAP. And we said, oh, let's get us together and start talking amongst 
people who wanted to make changes to their curriculum, who wanted to increase the number of Indigenous students, let's start um, pulling us together. And I, I imagine that we'd have a small group of, of interested people and it turned out to be incredibly much more than we expected. So, you know, we, we're very fortunate that we've got over 70% of um, uh, all Australian schools of psychology who are participating in the project. And I'll leave it to Jo um, to speak on her behalf of Belle and herself because they actually conduct the community of practices that are held regularly so people can come together, discuss... Um, and, and problem solve, share information. So we've actually got a community of practice operating. We also have an executive um, committee, which all, all the important bodies in psychology are a part of, and that's um, HODSPA, APAC, BSI, APS, and so on. So everyone's informed on the project and what's happening, and the support has been quite incredible. So we're really pleased um, with that, really enheartened. And from a little project that we envisaged that would happen, it's become quite one of the big projects in the Transforming Indigenous Mental Health and Wellbeing um, Research Project at UWA. So we're very pleased with that. Uh, I, I'm actually going to hand over, because I can wrap it on and on, which I find interesting, but the listeners might want to hear other voices. So I'm going to hand over to Joe to talk a bit more about APAP. So over to you, Joe. No worries. Um, just echoing what Pat was saying, I think for me it has been such a privilege to be able to come in to such an amazing project and see the transformations that are already happening. I always love um, hearing Pat's recall on the history of, of that first iteration of IPET because I think it really lays out the foundations of, of that kind of slower burn at the start, actually, of, of when APEP started um, almost a decade ago. And seeing how in the last few years, since that second iteration, seeing the allyship of APAC to change that standard and to, to really think about cultural responsiveness and how important this is for graduates um, coming out of psychology and the impact that's going to have on society as a whole has been just phenomenal. And I think just seeing that momentum that's been built over the last few years through APEP, I mean, it's incredible. We have 70% of all higher education providers on board, really enthusiastic and engaging with the community of practice. You know, it's a place that they come to for support, for resources, um, to discuss what they're doing and to share their ideas of, of what cultural responsiveness looks within their provider. And I mean, that's something that we've talked about um, through the APAC Working Party on Cultural Responsiveness is just how important it is to have, you know, creative and diverse ways of embedding the criterion. So, yeah, just really want to emphasise that point. Um, and just to also say uh, it's been incredible to have the guidance of IEPA throughout both iterations of the project and just really want to emphasise the role of IEPA in that. And oh, if I can jump in too, Dave, and say, look, the big take-home message on anything Indigenous, really, and we're seeing a resurgence of this, we need to have Indigenous governance. Um, we do need to have... Um, because that leads to self-determination. So any work that people are, are intending to do on Aboriginal Torres Strait Island matters, you have to involve Indigenous people. We give lots of examples of how to do that in our program. But, um, and we have got many Indigenous psychologists involved in the project, but to have the peak body, the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association, um, is absolutely imperative. 
So we couldn't have gone forward without um, their total support, which we have. This is a shared project. Romola, you've been waiting uh, to add something. Well, I wanted to, to talk about how APEP in particular has been so influential in the guidance that we have produced in the working party. The graduate attributes that were set out by APEP are used in the uh, guidance document. We have given examples of different levels of competencies required for psychologists in training, and we've mapped them not only against the APAC graduate competencies and the associated AQF levels, but also against the APEP graduate attributes, because it's a really helpful way of understanding what the competencies that we're looking for. And we've also drawn very heavily on the 12 pedagogical principles that APEP has developed because we think they're another really important and supportive way of um, framing training for psychology students in um, cultural awareness. And so, again, we've drawn very heavily on those in our document um, and used those as a way of mapping the kind of examples that were sent to us by schools of psychology that we could use as a way of clarifying what is it that we're looking for and a way of thinking about it. So APEP is a thread that runs through the guidance document. And then finally, and not least, we refer uh, providers to the APEP teaching resources because APEP provides and will continue to provide fantastic examples of best practice in curriculum development and in teaching. And so that's absolutely right. We don't need to invent this. We need to go to the experts, Indigenous people themselves, Indigenous psychologists specifically, and ask them for guidance on what is best practice. And so that is what we've referred to in the document. So APEP has been fundamental to our framing of this entire document. Before we we look a little bit more closely at the draft document and the process for feedback, Pat, I just wanted to ask you a broader question, because in the article for The Guardian, uh, you, the collective you, you, uh, the collective of authors, talked about decolonising psychology in Australia. So I was wondering if you could explain for listeners what you mean by that, and if successful, how, how would things be changed? Okay, um, David, look, um, one of the surprises I had in that the Guardian article was um, some of the negative comments, actually, um, that were made about um, decolonising. And, you know, we had people claiming that, you know, that's already done, although they didn't say where, you know, taking a social-emotional well-being approach, for in- instance. And um, there seemed to be a bit of, um, bit of uh, anxiety, if you like, about... You know, um, when we said we needed to decolonise um, psychology, I think that that there was a bit of def- defensiveness and misunderstanding. So I think some people um, thought that we were saying there wasn't a place for non-Indigenous psychologists or that we were trying to um, create an exclusive and separate space, which is um, sometimes there might be a need to have a separate space. But overall, our definition of de- decolonising psychology is that we have to challenge the current approaches that do not serve um, our Indigenous people and other 
cultural minority groups. So we need to always, as, as um, uh, practitioners and researchers, we should be challenging uh, everything all the time in any case, but particularly if we're from a group that's not well served and, um, and those approaches do not include us at all. So um, approaches have to recognise the realities and lived experience of us as Indigenous people and other, other um, cultural groups as well. We need to recognise the strengths and models of well-being that are already held by those groups because it's not only that Indigenous people were invisible. Recently, we had um, a colleague come to us where Indigenous people were shown in a, in a chapter of an outdated book as, as abnormal psychology and, you know, all sorts of, you know, misunderstandings and references were made to Indigenous people. So, as Joe was saying earlier... We need to recognise the strengths that everyone brings to the table as well and talk to our realities. For us, decolonising psychology is about drawing on and privileging Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing. It's about drawing on Indigenous paradigms, particularly social and emotional well-being. There are other models that are emerging and it's been a really creative and exciting space. But we particularly... Um, like the um, social-emotional well-being approach. Decolonising psychology is about considering the role of colonisation and the contemporary impacts of that that still are showing. It's about self-determination, ensuring, as I said earlier, you know, if you're going to engage with Aboriginal people or topics, involve Aboriginal people. And that would go for any group, any marginalised group. You know, one of the great things I've seen happen is um, lived experience now at the table when we talk in all the mental health reform. Very important, and so it should have been. But now's the time, um, I think, we as a society have matured, or as a discipline have, have matured. We now expect um, people with lived experience to be at the table when we discuss mental health, suicide prevention and so on. Um, decolonising psychology for us is about engaging in culturally responsive and safe principles and practices and finally it, it, it's also about um, decolonising research and ensuring that our research benefits the groups that we're doing research with particularly Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people that it is um, identified from the needs and aspirations of the people and it involves them in appropriate ways all the way through. So we, we looked at different methodologies. We use Aboriginal pre-action research, for example. We find that work that is a preferred way of working with Aboriginal communities. But there's lots of different ways and, you know, there's a role for quantitative research as well. But Indigenous people need to be um, involved from the you know get go from the the uh, getting having an idea to to um, going into a research um, process. But we need to um, make space to include others in our discipline, and the knowledges that emerge from a decolonising psychology will benefit us all. So when we talk about social emotional well being, that is um, closer to an Indigenous reality. But it benefits non-Indigenous people too. It enriches our discipline. So while um, obviously my concern would be about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, having a, a SEWB service, that should be for everyone. You know, there should be that choice for everyone.
everyone. So it's not about um, separatism, but it is about um, opening up our discipline so there's room for other groups and that will benefit us all. Now, the working group has drawn up some draft guidelines. They've been uh, approved as a draft by the APAC board and are out for feedback. Would you like to take us through some of the things which are in those guidelines? And then, Romola, what's the process for people to give feedback on them? So if I may, I'll take both of those. The draft guidance is about to go out for consultation. It's very much intended to be supportive, not prescriptive. And what we've done is we've provided some definitions so that we're all on the same page when it comes to the terms we use, terms like culture, cultural awareness, cultural humility, cultural responsiveness. And we've then broken the guidance down into three sections. And the first one expands on and clarifies what is Criterion 3.8 all about, decodes it. The second section then speaks to the kind of evidence that providers need to provide, schools need to provide around how they're addressing that criterion. And the third section includes some examples of the kinds of supporting evidence, showing the kinds of flexibility, the very open and different ways that that different providers address the evidence, address the issue of cultural responsiveness and the kinds of evidence they've used. And we've done that in order to make it clear that no two schools of psychology, departments of psychological science, will approach Criterion 3.8 in the same way. And indeed, we're not looking for cookie cutter. We're looking for approaches that work in the, in the context of where you're placed from a, from a geographical perspective, who's around you, what indigenous people, what are the issues, what expertise do you have, what student body do you have, and so on. So it's very much not a one-size-fits-all. It's very much a we welcome a rich variety of approaches. So this draft guidance is going to go out for consultation. We will be writing to key stakeholders, Hotspur is one example, and asking for feedback. And one of the ways we're going to do that is there will be a survey Uh, We'll provide a survey link and information about both the process for providing feedback, the survey link, and the actual draft documents will be available on the website. There's also an opportunity if um, schools of psychology providers have additional examples they'd like to give us that they would like to see in the, the guidance document in the final version for them to send us additional versions. I'm not going to guarantee that everything will get included because we don't want a document to be bigger than Ben-Hur, but if we think that an additional example would help to flesh out the document and provide additional support, we would uh, would add it. So we're very much wanting constructive feedback on this draft document and we'll be looking for that in the coming weeks. Okay, that's great. Look, I'd really like to finish by asking all of you, assuming this all works, and obviously we hope it does, and things move in the right direction, what kind of changes in psychology training would you hope or expect to see over, the say, the next five years? 
I think we should all answer that, but I'll get in quickly now so um, uh, um, because I'm sure we've got similar responses. But, look, I'd like to see psychology training becoming um, much more um, a part of um, the modern world, a part of this very diverse, dynamic society, globe, um, a global movement that's happening. So I think that's important and um, we're seeing that in any case. So I think psychology programs need to reflect a contemporary society without surrendering some of the good and and, um, and and rich traditions that are there, but it needs to include different ways of approaching humanity. It needs to be more and much more inclusive. And um, from the um, APAC standards, I see that, you know, obviously we're coming in a very much from an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, position, but this is about all of us. This is not, you know, sometimes when I've said that we need to have Aboriginal studies in the curriculum, whether it's psychology or, or um, you know, elsewhere, people respond and say, oh, well, why don't we have Vietnamese studies or Italian studies? And I say, why not? You know, we need to be um, uh, inclusive of all the cultures that make up our society. But in the first instance, it has to be the First Nations people, obviously. But I'm hoping to see a, a much more broader and inclusive psychology. Thank you. Joe. your thoughts? Yeah, really echoing um, Pat's reflections there. I would absolutely just love to see, and I think we're already starting to, to see the beginnings of this, um, but an inclusive curriculum that teaches about the diverse cultural histories and realities of people and, and paradigms and their practices of well-being to really set a precedence of teaching Indigenous psychologies, histories, um, models of well-being and the importance of culture in, in everything that we do really and, and that historical underpinning of, of psychology. So that sort of philosophical perspective of, of what psychology is and the discipline and how it came to be and what are the structural gaps and how can we um, address those and be more inclusive. We know uh, that representation is hugely important. So if we're going to make headway on increasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander psychologists, then we really need to be focusing our efforts on representation as well. You know, I did also want to just take a moment to to mention um, Belle Selkirk's reflection that she raised. She's a wonderful colleague of ours who works in the Australian Indigenous Psychology Education Project, as Pat mentioned, um, and she's a me member of the APAC Working Party and Cultural Responsiveness, as Romola mentioned before. Uh, one reflection that she raised was around the importance of building capacity in the mental health workforce. Um, so she noted that Aboriginal psychologists are approached on a regular basis to do high-level and complex work. For many, this is going to be a heavy load to bear and it can be really taxing in the long term. Sometimes that work is poorly remunerated, it's volunteer work, it's off the side of your desk kind of work, um, or it's saying yes to something when you are already really at your capacity. Now, the good work of IEPA is an example of that. You know, they're a peak body representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander psychologists across Australia who are in demand constantly to do this high-level work. And it's often done by dedicated volunteers. So there needs to be more support for IEPA in that regard as well. And I guess it's important as well um, that we support the social and emotional well-being of our existing and emerging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander psychologists. 
And, and Bill reflected really nicely that APAC's commitment helps to build that allyship and capacity across the psychological workforce so that not only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are receiving better care, but that also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander psychologists don't have to do it alone um, and they can have sustainable and long-term careers. So I just, I really wanted to showcase that reflection there. I think it just beautifully captures that by working together, by APAC showing that allyship in this space, we can really turn things around, not only for those receiving care, but also to, to support the sustainability and the well-being of our own workforce. I think that's hugely important. Thanks, Joe, And through you, thanks to Belle for that, uh, for that reflection and contribution. So over to you, Romla, for final thoughts. Follow that is my response, David, after those wonderful responses from, from Pat and Joe. I guess one of the things that I'd like to see in the future is that through privileging uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and culture in the training of students of psychology. What I want to see is psychologists who are therefore able not only to work in allyship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but also with all peoples from different cultures. And I mean culture beyond a focus on ethnicity. We have cultures of age, we have cultures of what music you listen to, what clothes you wear. Culture is very, very broad. And one of the really important things about considering and developing cultural responsiveness in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is that it forces one to confront one's own culture and to step outside that culture and to understand the schemas, the rules, the implicit mores, the expectations that cage us all in, that actually define us in ways that can be restrictive. And in developing cultural responsiveness, in particularly in relation to First Nations peoples, it allows us to develop students who have grown in ways that will benefit not just other clients from other cultures, but themselves and their own self-understanding and will make them be better practitioners. So as Pat has said, we are all winners if we start with this focus. And by implementing this criterion in the standards, I think APAC has helped us further along that journey. And I can only see good things coming from it. Well, that's a great note to finish on. Thank you, all of you, for your time, Pat, Joe and Romola. APAC hopes this discussion will help higher education providers with understanding the context and approach of the draft guidelines that will be circulated to the sector shortly for feedback, and we would really welcome your thoughts. If people want to read more about this or any other APAC matter, head to our website at Psychology Council, or one word, .org.au. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. And until then, goodbye.